That's all good and fun. There is a purpose of that. Like I've said, I do want us to be remembering there's no satisfaction apart from God. Amen? Amen. Amen. The last hundred years of sports has developed an intense atmosphere of competition. While there are some really good elements of having a competitive spirit and overall a competitive culture, there are also countless scenarios of competition gone wrong. So listen to a few of these, and perhaps you'll remember them as I was thinking through this week. In, to, in the 2000s, actually the year 2000, the Paralympics basketball tournament was won by the Spanish Paralympic basketball team. They were excited to have finally won a gold medal at something. However, after further investigation, it was revealed that 10 out of 12 players on the team were not actually mentally disabled. They just really wanted a gold medal. Uh, in recent years, one phenomenon that has occurred regularly is faking an injury in order to slow down the clock for your advantage. This can be for the advantage of the offense or the defense, depending on the scenario. And one extreme example occurred in a rugby game. Toward the end of the game, one of the players started bleeding from the mouth. It stopped the clock. It was to this team's advantage, and, uh, and it worked out in the end. However, upon reviewing it, there was something kind of fishy. This guy whose mouth was bleeding, he had previously dropped something out of his mouth, picked it up, put it in his mouth, and shortly after, he was bleeding. As they investigated it, they found out that the coach had offered to pay the player extra money to put a blood capsule in his mouth and bite on it when he got into contact with someone in order to bleed from the mouth so as to stop the game. Needless to say, both the coach and player were later suspended. In 2007, it was revealed that the New England Patriots under Bill Belichick had been filming other teams' practices, even other teams' defensive coordinators during the games as he was sending in signals. And while this is an ordinary part of pro baseball, this is illegal in the NFL. It's now known as Spygate and is another example of competition gone wrong. Likewise, sorry to pick on the Patriots, but in 2014 and 15, during the playoffs, the Patriots were again accused uh, for what's known as deflate gate, exactly. And here, they, def they defeated the Indianapolis Colts in the AFC Championship, but it was later found out that Brady and the Patriots had purposely or willingly or at least knowingly uh, deflated the balls in the cold weather so that it was easier to catch and throw. Well, this, once proven in a federal court, resulted in four-game suspension for Brady, and the team was fined a million dollars. From there, maybe even more serious, the New Orleans Saints, staying within the NFL, uh, are famous for their bounty gate. And in the bounty gate in 2011, it was revealed that the Saints were paying players bonuses for every opposing player, primarily quarterbacks, who were taken out of the game due to injury. 
Following this, the Saints were deliberately aiming to take out QB's knees, to pin their shoulders to the ground, to hit them high-low, etc. As a result of this being found out and proven, head coach Sean Payton was suspended for a year, the defensive coordinator was suspended indefinitely, and four Saints players were suspended for up to a year, and then the team was fined also. Lastly, (laughs) the decade really surrounding the 2000s was not the finest decade for MLB baseball. Uh, Stars were showcased, such as Mark McGuire and Barry Bonds, and right away you should know where I'm going with this. Mark McGuire set the single-season home run record with 70 home runs in a season. Just a few years later, Barry Bonds broke it with 73. Both had tremendous power at the plate, such as had never been seen before. Go figure. Well, it was later revealed that both of these men and many, many others were using anabolic steroids to enhance their performance throughout their careers. Uh, The MLB sadly set a new era marked by steroids and other performance-enhancing illegal drugs. In addition to McGuire and Bonds, some of the most famous names in baseball were caught using steroids. Names such as Jose Canseco, Brett Boone, Jason Giambi, Andy Pettit, Mike Piazza, David Ortiz, Sammy Sosa. Man, Sammy. I was a Sammy fan. Manny Ramirez, Roger Clemens, Rafael Palmeiro, and Alex Rodriguez, or A-Rod. Well, just these few examples show us it's not difficult to fall into over-competition, especially in the realm of sports. It's easy to cut corners. It's easy to cheat. Today's generation of just common athletes, like the rest of us, are no different, though. It's only a matter of time before, in the pro world, the next big scandal comes out, the next big thing. But meanwhile, even in the the culture of athletics as a whole, over-competition is really marking sports. Well, here are some signs, and you can ask yourself this when you're playing a board game or you're playing a basketball game, sports, or just games for fun. Here's a sign if maybe you're an over-competitive person. If when you don't win, you throw a fit, you throw a chair, you throw your mouth guard, or you throw something in the air, you probably are a little bit over-competitive. If when competing, you have no respect for your competitor, you're constantly talking bad about them, demeaning them, you probably have a little bit of the case of over-competition. If when you're playing, you deliberately want to hurt someone, hey, rummy can get intense sometimes, okay? If you deliberately want to hurt someone, you probably are a little bit over-competitive. Or, if you're willing to break the agreed-upon rules in order to win, then you're probably over-competitive. Now, like I said, this doesn't just apply to sports, right? It applies to political races, it applies in the academic settings, and even in the workplace. So tonight, I want to talk about competition. I want to arrive by the end of the night with a balanced view. My wish is not to throw out competition as the marking character attribute of Satan. Okay, I think there are some good things in competition. I think there are some positive elements, even biblical elements. But I do want to point out the idol that may be resting in all of our hearts, or at least some of our hearts, which is competition. There are some serious dangers involved with this idol in particular. So, uh, as we've been studying through, turn back to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, and I will read this passage for us once again. Ecclesiastes... Joining Solomon in his experiment of pleasure, he's pursuing everything under the sun in order to derive satisfaction, derive pleasure, happiness, joy. 
And I'll read the passage again. Ecclesiastes 2, verse 1. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself. And behold, it too was futility. I said of laughter, it is madness. And of pleasure, what does it accomplish? I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely and how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven the few years of their lives. I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself and I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, and I had homeborn slaves. Also, I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. So, This is Solomon's grand experiment. And I'm so thankful to God, friends, that Solomon ran this experiment for us because if we want to walk with wisdom in this life and if we want to be able to look back on our lives without regrets, we would do well to learn from Solomon now. So far, in an effort to find pleasure, he has pursued fun, and that didn't work. And then he pursued alcohol, and that didn't work. And then he turned to stuff or possessions, things he could acquire, and that didn't work either. And now the next avenue he's going to pursue that we'll consider is really uh, construction, uh, industry, building things, making things. And we could have just stopped there, but I wanted to get a layer deeper. And I think behind this idol, the idol of building and producing and constructing. Behind this idol, there's a deeper motive guiding him. Look again at verse 7. just want to try to draw this out of this text. He says, I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Here in the details of this verse, we find that Solomon was keenly aware of his wealth and his kingdom with respect to other kingdoms. Particularly, he's interested in the past. He's going into the comparison game here, and he already knew he was the greatest king alive in this day. All the other kingdoms were basically worshiping at his feet. But now, I believe he's looking at his heritage. Now, who did the kingly heritage consist of at this point in Israel's history? Well, it wasn't very long, was it? You had Saul, and then you had David, and then you had Solomon. And Saul really just got the kingdom era going. And so really, I believe that Solomon has David in mind here. And who was David? Well, David was his dad. So think about this now. He's saying, I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem, but the only potential competition for top dog, if you will, was his dad. It was his own father. So, though this comment is made regarding his flocks and herds, I think that this speaks into verse 4 as we pick up for tonight when he says, I enlarged my works. I enlarged my works. In other words, he's amassing wealth and now he's going to undergo a massive remodeling and expansion project. Okay? He's going to take the kingdom by storm, remodel it, and expand it to make it bigger, better, fancier, more wealthy, etc., And I think that Solomon is primarily competing with his father's kingdom. I think he wants to outdo his father as a means of pleasure, happiness, satisfaction. So, 
That's kind of the idea behind this. He's got this competitive spirit. He's aware of his competition, all the other kings, but also the history of kings. And the avenue through which he's going to exercise this competition is building and acquiring making his kingdom more excellent than his dad's. Now, he's already got buildings, right? He's already got some vineyards, but now he's just going to make them bigger and better. And so, as we pick up here, I believe he's trying to do this to somehow derive satisfaction, and we'll get into that as we go. But look at the first thing. Verse 4, the first thing he does, I enlarged my works, there's the general statement, and then he says, I built houses for myself. And I think the principle here is that he's going after construction. He's going after construction as a means of satisfaction. Now, the text itself says he built houses, but I don't think that's a super helpful translation. It's more the idea of buildings. If we want to say houses, then we have to say they were super huge houses and they were houses of vineyards. (laughs) Okay, so it's easier to just say buildings. He went after construction and building as a means of joy. Now, I think there's at least three areas here within construction and buildings where he pursues. First Chronicles 27, 27 says that he made wine cellars in order to store the grapes of the fermenting wine. In addition, 1 Kings 9, 19 says he built entire cities, get this, for his chariots and his horsemen. And so, uh, if you recall, there's tens of thousands of chariots, tens of thousands of horsemen. So you've got all these horses, all these men. And so Solomon, actually in the midst of this, builds cities. Right? Last week we saw he gave away 20 cities. No big deal. Yeah, sure, have 20 cities. Here he's building new cities. And lastly, he made some buildings that were not out of necessity, but just for pleasure. So he's building kind of storage places, he's building towns for people to live in, and he's building buildings for pleasure. Solomon made some of the most fancy and amazingly beautiful buildings up to that point, really, that were uh, (laughs) renowned worldwide at this point. 1 Kings 6-9 through records those. So I, I think we can understand, we can grasp what he's doing, but why is he doing that? How does Solomon think going after construction can give him satisfaction? Well, I think pursuing construction competitively, we can relate to if we really think about it. And I want you to imagine for a moment, you are a six-year-old, okay? You're on the beach, your parents let you go, you run out to the water, you realize, oh, the ocean in Oregon is colder than I thought. And so you've got to find something else to do. And, uh, and so you end up back on the beach, and you've got this little pail and you've got, you've got your pail and your little scoop. And what's the first thing most little kids do? Yes, a sandcastle, right? They start constructing a sandcastle. And does it typically just start about this big and stay that big? Mm-mm. What do little kids want to do? They want to make it bigger and better and fancier. And by the end of the day, they've got a three-story sandcastle with bedrooms for 25 people. They've got a moat going around it for the water with a bridge, right? You've got this big, huge, elaborate sandcastle. And then if their friend over here builds a bigger sandcastle, what do they do? Well, they find a way to make theirs bigger. A little snapshot, right? A little snapshot into, at least for us men, <laughs> this desire to build and construct and make stuff, Right? Well, how about for adults? And i am got an engineering background, so I think through that lens. But engineers and architects, I mean, that world is constantly, how do we make it bigger? How do we make it nicer? How do we make it fancier, more attractive? Right? There's this desire for more, 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 more when it comes to what we can build. 
When you visit a city, what makes the most beautiful city? Well, it's the ones with the highest skyscrapers, right? Some people will rent a, a bedroom apartment that just overlooks a city. And so I think that all too often our desire to be the best guides what we do often, doesn't it? Our desire to be uh, on top, to be king. And I think that's coming out here. As Solomon is pursuing buildings, he's not just building buildings for satisfaction in and of themselves, but there's something driving that, that he is uh, determined to have the greatest kingdom that has ever existed up to that point. Now, Solomon is searching for satisfaction in competition. He's trying to build things to receive joy, and yet they never will. Why? Because eventually stuff breaks. Sandcastles are going to get destroyed, probably by your friend, or if not by the tide. Buildings are going to break down. Fancy stuff is going to not be fancy anymore. And so you see, it's just this endless cycle of never-ending disappointment. I think that's true for grown-ups as well, by the way. We build stuff, it breaks down. We've got to redo it over and over and over again. And friends, in a fallen world, things are just going to break down. Therefore, you cannot receive satisfaction in anything that you or I can construct. So, I think the text evidence is that buildings didn't satisfy him. He says, I built houses for myself or buildings, but he doesn't stop there. Next, I planted vineyards for myself. And here, I think he goes now to industry. He's been in the construction field. Now he's going to go to industry. I don't think that this growing here was a necessity. I don't think Solomon was struggling for, uh, with regard to food or drink. I don't think he was uh, short of wine. He wasn't short of money. But I think he's pursuing industry in order to have the biggest and most productive vineyard operation in the land. He wanted to be the best vineyard farmer. Well, where do I drive this? Well, 1 Chronicles 27 said that he had a warehouse to store all the fruit of his crop. Okay, so he's got warehouses full of this stuff. And then secondly, in Song of Solomon 8.11, it records that Solomon had a vineyard that he entrusted to caretakers, which would produce a thousand shekels of silver for its fruit. And that's just one vineyard. So he's getting a thousand shekels of silver from it. And so I think he is industry driven here, money really driven. And if you look at the detail in the text, verse 4, he says, I planted vineyards, plural. Okay. So imagine a vineyard, which is a whole, I mean, multiple acres of grapes, and he's got multiple vineyards. So, I think he's pursuing it with a competitive edge in order to be the best. Once again, it appears to be a ploy to be the biggest, the greatest, number one, numero uno. Competition and the desire for glory is driving his farming. It's driving his industry. And collegians, I just want to ask you now. I want to take this from this day and age and apply it right now, right here, okay? When you think about your career, do you often imagine yourself on top? Do you picture yourself standing on the first place podium of whatever uh, field you may be in? Do you dream of the day when you will be recognized by all of us as having really done something? Wow, that person, they are really successful. Look at that gal or look at that guy. Look how well they did. He's the greatest engineer of our era. Wow, that's the most cutting edge doctor that there is in medicine. That's the best public speaker we've seen in decades. Do you desire these sort of things? And I want to say this, it's not wrong to want to be the best that you can be, but boy, we better check our motives, right? We better check what's going on inside of our hearts here. If your motive is to be the best, be careful that it doesn't lead you to other sins, okay? Be careful that it doesn't lead you down 
a bad road, as Solomon did here. So, from industry, from construction to industry, now he moves to beauty. Look at verse 5. He says, I made gardens and parks for myself, and I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. He moves now to beauty, and first he says he's planting gardens and parks. And I think the idea here is he's wanting to create a sort of an ambiance which uh, produces pleasure. It produces uh, relaxation. It produces joy. We know from Song of Solomon how much Solomon enjoyed the natural processes of life. Really, uh, he enjoyed the sight of a garden. He enjoyed the sight of a blossoming flower. Song of Solomon 6.11, I went down to the orchard of nut trees to see the blossoms of the valley, to see whether the vine had budded or the pomegranates had bloomed. It's interesting, for those of you that were here a couple Sunday nights ago when Pastor Brian taught through the book of Song of Solomon, interesting that throughout this book, he describes the beauty of his girlfriend slash wife using garden imagery, okay? <laughs> There's something ambient then in Solomon's mind about a garden and about plants and trees that reminded him of the intimacy with his wife. So whatever he means to say in talking about this, he's using it as a comparison some way, somehow, something about the scene of a garden or a park or a field of lilies, whatever it may be, is pleasurable for him. It's an an enjoyment for him. And so I think here he's competitively pursuing beauty as a source of pleasure, and he's going to try to make then the most beautiful garden, the most beautiful park, and the most beautiful orchard of trees. Right? And I think we can understand this. Think about it today. Do most families try to landscape their lawns? Right? There's something nice when you walk up to a house and it's well landscaped. There's a flower bed and bushes and trees. It kind of puts the mood at ease. It creates a sort of an ambiance. In the same way, on a larger scale, maybe you've been to uh, a rose garden somewhere or a massive orchard, especially in the spring, right? When they're blossoming, the trees blossom. It, it's a stunning, really, it is a stunning scene what nature can do. Beautiful, breathtaking. Yeah, there's joy from it. There's pleasure from it. But listen, gang, plants don't care about your soul. (laughs) Parks can care less about your standing before God, and trees will not make you happy for days on end, no matter how much you fertilize them. These things make a terrible God. And that's where Solomon is going. He's going to the beauty of a landscape for his joy and satisfaction. And it comes up empty. Well, he wasn't done with pursuing beauty. I think he goes even a step further in verse 6. He says, I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. So moving from the the garden scene and the park scene now, he's really going to a scene that all of us can relate to. He's going to the scene of a large body of water with trees around it. I mean, how many of you don't love some of the mountain lakes here in Montana, right? Right? If you've ever sat on the dock at a lake or been on a boat on a lake and there's glassy water and there's trees all around it, here we have some mountains as well, uh, it it really is a stunning sight, isn't it? And I think some people dream about, they work for 40, 50, 60 years in order to retire on a mountain lake somewhere just so they can stare at that, just so they can enjoy the breathtaking beauty of God's creation. 
whether they acknowledge it as that or not. Well, I think that's what Solomon is doing here. He's pursuing, uh, again, the ambiance of scenery, the beauty. And so he makes these ponds, and the ponds naturally feed into the forest so as to keep the forest continually growing, multiplying, getting bigger. And yet, I think, once again, it comes up empty. And so, I, just imagine this, okay? In one portion of the kingdom, Solomon has made these massive build, buildings. He's got beautiful buildings. And again, if you've ever been to a big city, especially at night, it can be kind of cool. I don't know what it would have been like in this day and age. But there's something about buildings that kind of gives you a little bit of satisfaction, especially if you made them. And then in another portion of the kingdom, you've got these massive vineyards, massive orchards, okay? Beautiful, beautiful. And now you've got this kind of mountain reservoir look. Okay, you've got ponds and forests, and, and he's got all the aspects of his kingdom all lined out for ultimate satisfaction. He can just sit on the top of his house and stare that way for a while, then turn over this way for a while, then turn back over this way, and he's thinking, maybe then I'll be endlessly happy. What do you think? Does it work? Does it work? And yet, friends, do people today fall into this trap? Do people today spend their whole lives in order to retire somewhere with a beautiful scene in hopes of satisfaction from it? Yes, people buy this lie. I think we can fall into this lie if we're not careful. Solomon found that nothing he could produce, nothing he could make, nothing he could competitively pursue and be the best at brought him satisfaction. No work, no scenery, no matter how far his competitive nature took him. If we combine last week with this week, and now we look at it from the aspect of him wanting to outdo his father, we see that he pursues construction. He pursues production or industry. He beauty or pursues beauty. He pursues wealth. He pursues possessions and entertainment and fun. All of these things I think he's pursuing to their utmost. Remember, he's doing this exhaustively. Or we might say competitively. He's trying to be the best or the greatest at any of these things to derive the most possible pleasure. Man, I think there's some of this in us too at times. Underlying all this, he wants to be the best. And why does he want to be the best? Because he wants glory and he wants to feel good. And yet, at the end of the day, he concludes this is vanity. It's fleeting. It doesn't last. It, it can't satisfy you. So as we seek to look at the implication from this, it seems fitting to ask, did Solomon ever figure this out? Did Solomon get it right? And I think he did. Deontay's going to close us in a few weeks, actually at the end of the semester, in chapter 12 with the ultimate conclusion. But for now, look in chapter 2, starting in verse 17. Solomon, even though this experiment was somewhat foolish, I think we can kind of see through that being that we have more wisdom now, being enlightened by the Spirit. Uh, nonetheless, he goes on to make a brilliant conclusion. Chapter 2, verse 17, he says, So I hated my life, or I hated life, for the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me, because everything is futility and striving after wind. Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor, for which I had labored under the sun. For I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor, for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. Verse 20, Therefore 
I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. When there's a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, then he gives his legacy to one who has not labored with them. This too is vanity and a great evil. For what does a man get in all his labor and in, all, and in his striving with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days, his task is painful and grievous. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This too is vanity. Hmm. What does Solomon conclude here? After running this experiment, I think we see uh, really a statement that we could form that comes out of this. A principle for us. And here it is. Being the greatest can't bring lasting joy because eventually you die. Being the greatest can't bring lasting joy because eventually you die. Let me give some examples. Your team wins the championship and has a record-breaking year. Then you graduate. You move on. Next year, someone else wins the championship. A few years later, someone else breaks your record. The next latest and greatest athlete arises. Eventually, all your trophies, all your medals, all your championships, and the rings that accompany them find their way into a box in the garage somewhere. And no one even knows who you are. How about this example? A father builds the family business from scratch, and by the end of his life, he has a thriving company. In the meantime, though, he's been counting on handing off the company to his son so as to preserve the family legacy. But his son is a drug addict. Now the father's whole identity is wrapped up in this legacy of his company and his family name, and he finds himself in a crisis in his old age as he looks back on his entire life work with regret. Or how about this example? A nice elderly couple spends the last 20 years of their lives tending a garden. It's a spectacular garden spotless. They work the garden hours every day, have all sorts of plants, fruits, vegetables growing in it. They pass away and soon weeds begin to overtake the garden. Within two years, it's hardly recognizable as a garden and it looks like just a big weed patch. Just a few modern day examples, right, to show I think what Solomon is arguing in Ecclesiastes 2. Even if you win, even if you're the best, even if you're the greatest, it too is fleeting. It doesn't satisfy. You can't take it with you, friends. No one goes to heaven with a U-Haul behind them, right? You can't take it with you. Do you see Solomon's conclusion then? He says that if a man's entire worth and value come from his work and come from being the best, then it's going to let you down. Why? Because eventually you get old, you have to pass it on to someone else, and there's a lot of risk in that. You don't know if this guy's going to be a knucklehead or if he's going to take on what you did and do better. You don't know if he's going to be true to what your vision was. And in most scenarios, what happens? You've observed this. When management changes, does the company stay exactly the same? No. Changes happen, right? And I think if we, if we kind of put ourselves in those shoes for a moment, just to drive this home, imagine you've built a company up and your DNA is, runs through this company and then you hand it off to someone else and you retire and they start changing stuff. Mm, that's not how we do it around here, right? That's not how this is supposed to be. Or imagine you're a farmer and you end up selling your farm and someone develops it and puts a McDonald's right in the middle of it. Okay. Imagine you are just a worker and you work your job faithfully for 40, 50 years, but you have a lot of pride in your job. Eventually you have to leave it. And you know what? You can't control how that job is done anymore. You have no say, you have no input, 
It no longer belongs to you. That's what Solomon's arguing here. He says, as he looked at the the scope of his life, all the work, all the labor he'd done, it was vanity. Why? Because he can't hold on to it. He can't take it with him. Therefore, there's no lasting value in it. So, I think, application for a moment. There's a lot of people in this world that are workaholics, aren't there? There's a lot of people that are workaholics. And as I kind of get into the mind of a workaholic, I'm very close to many of them, uh, (laughs) here's what I think potentially could be driving. In many cases, driving a workaholic is this exact idol. The idol of competition. The idol of wanting to be successful and the most successful. Right? You want to lust, you're lusting after that promotion. You're lusting after a pay raise. You're lusting after bigger, better, the best. Okay? And so therefore, you're willing to work and work and work and compromise other areas of your life in order that you might build your empire and see your kingdom as number one. Do you know someone like that? Friends, what we learn from Solomon is that if your entire worth and your joy comes from what you do as work, or what you've achieved, it's going to let you down. It's going to let you down. If you work a job, eventually you're going to have to stop. If you play a sport or you coach a sport, eventually there's going to be a new coach. There's going to be new players. You're going to move on. The the team's going to change their identity. If you are looking to work to derive your success, it won't bring you lasting joy because that success can't go with you. It cannot leave here. And so I think Solomon says it well in verse 17 of chapter 2 when he says, so I hated life. I hated life. This is kind of depressing, isn't it? (laughs) This is a, a very depressing book. I have a very good friend who's a godly man, a Christian man, who I look up to a lot. And he read Ecclesiastes and he said, man, that just bummed me out. It really did. Everything's vanity. What hope do we have as Christians? What hope do we have as those who know God and follow God? Well, I think what Solomon does is he basically pokes holes in every false container that can hold water. Nothing holds water here. But when we trust in God, what happens then? When we know God personally through Jesus Christ, and what I'm I'm talking about is when we say, like the apostle said, Lord, where else can we go? For you have the words of eternal life. When we have that aspect of our life as central to who we are and our core identity is that I know and I love and I follow Jesus Christ, then we have meaning. Then we have satisfaction. Then we have true pleasure. Psalm 1611, Lord, in your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, here's the interesting thing, though, gang. When we have our affections right, when we uh, appropriately love God first and foremost, and our identity is in Christ, here's what happens. Through Jesus, we can rightly enjoy things on earth. We can rightly thrive in our workplaces. We can pursue success and not have it as an idol. I want to say this. I think we can do it better than unbelievers can. I think when you have God as your first and foremost love, then you can actually enjoy the things of this earth more than people who idolize them as God. Ecclesiastes 2, verse 24, 
Solomon says there's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I've seen that is from the hand of God. I think he's saying here that when you have God as your first and foremost, when you're not looking at all that's under the sun, in other words, apart from God, but when God is primary in your life, then yes, enjoy eating, enjoy drinking, enjoy working even. This is good. God has made us to work. So, I think we, when Christ is central, can actually enjoy things more than those who turn to them as idols. Being that we are redeemed and set apart from the enslavement to something like competition or the desire to be the best, what do we do with it now? And what I want to do, just to kind of begin to wrap things up here, is I want to give us four determinations Four determinations as we think through competition, we think through the pursuit of success and being the best from a Christian standpoint. And I think these four determinations will hopefully give us a grid to arrive at a balanced place with competition. Does that sound good? Okay. No one said yes, but I'm sure there were silent nods. Yep. Okay, good. Number one, and if you've got your hand out, here's the blank. Develop a competitive mindset in your personal walk with God. Develop a competitive mindset in your personal walk with God. So here's the thing. Instead of trying to be the best in the world's eyes or on the world's terms, try to be the best in accordance with God's terms or what God has revealed. The Apostle Paul was quite regularly using athletic imagery to describe the Christian life. Turn over to the New Testament. We'll be in the New Testament for a little while here. Uh, Galatians, Ephesians, go over to Philippians. Philippians chapter 3, Paul uses this athletic imagery of his own life. He says in verse 13 of Philippians chapter 3, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Listen, gang, Paul is applying the athletic mindset to his own personal Christian walk. Was Paul a brand new believer here? Not even close. Probably been a Christian for 30 years. Probably already written portions of scripture. And yet he says, I don't even think of any of that anymore. All I know is what's in front of me, and I'm going. I'm running after the prize, just like an athlete runs to win the prize. Likewise, turn a few books to your right to 1 Timothy chapter 4. I love this passage. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, midway through, he says, Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of a little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This word here, discipline or train, is the Greek word gymnazo, and we derive our current English word gymnasium from it. Well, why is that significant? Well, even in their day, it was an athletic term. It was a term that was used to refer to those who would compete in the games, kind of a similar form to the Olympic Games. And in this, uh, this day and age, when an athlete set his face to compete in the games, he had to vow to train for a year. He had to vow that he would train every day for a year. And as he'd train, he would throw off anything that would encumber him, including all of his clothes, actually. He didn't want anything getting in the way of lifting and training, right? I mean, imagine trying to lift in a big, you know, puffball snowsuit. It's not going to work. So he would throw off anything that would get in his way. 
Well, now Paul borrows that term and he sticks it into the Christian life. And he says this, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. And then did you notice verse 8? He's already comparing bodily discipline, which was how they would have understood that term, with now godliness. Right? And why is godliness better? Not that bodily discipline is bad, but godliness holds value for this life and for the life to come. And if you look at verse 10, it's the living God whom we serve, and so therefore it's worth it. Right? It's worth it. All that to say, Paul, I think, is using competitive language in order to pursue godliness, in order to stir you and me on toward wanting to discipline ourselves, to train ourselves for the purpose of godliness. So the principle, number one, that we're looking at is to develop a competitive mindset in our personal walks with God. But what about Jesus? Flip back to Matthew chapter 5. And uh, although I don't know that Jesus used necessarily the same athletic words, he did set a competitive standard in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, greatest sermon by the greatest preacher, verse 20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Again in verse 48. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Friends, Jesus is setting a bar here for the standard of the Christian life. Yes, this is an impossible bar when you're apart from Christ. But when you're in the kingdom of God, when you're redeemed by Christ, you've got the Spirit living in you, this is what the Christian should live like. This is the standard, and I think that therefore sets a competitive standard for us to pursue. What does this look like for you and me? Maybe it says, man, by the grace of God, I want to be the best dad that I can possibly be for the glory of God. Or man, I want to challenge myself all week to have godly thoughts every day. I want to discipline my eyes so that I'm not looking at things I shouldn't be looking at. Or I want to pursue uh, studying the scriptures to the best of my ability. I want to compete with myself. I want to compete to try to live up to the word of God. Compete with yourself, friends. Develop a competitive mindset for your personal walk with God. Number two, leverage competition with others to make yourself better than you could be on your own. And I think this can apply in life in general, but looking at the Christian life in particular now, uh, go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Go past Acts to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And once again, the Apostle Paul, this is probably his most saturated passage when it comes to competition and athletics. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. If you're not there, go ahead and just listen. Verse 24, he says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? And here we go. Here's the command. Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. He borrows here in this passage the analogy of racing and the analogy of boxing. He even borrows the imagery of receiving a prize at the end, a wreath. And he uses it, friends, to compel us to compete, to compel us to strive to be the best. So uh, the, the point I'm trying to make here is to leverage competition with others to make yourself better than you could be on your own. 
If you live your Christian life in a bubble and you never set any standards, any goals, you never have anyone to push you, I can guarantee you will not be all that God wants you to be. I can guarantee that on the basis of the fact that God recorded all of the Old Testament as examples for us to follow. Men and women to stir us, to pursue us in a direction or set us pursuing a direction. What does this look like in our lives then? Well, maybe it means you get into a discipleship relationship. Why? Because you need someone to set the bar higher than where you're currently at. Maybe this means you get yourself around other godly men, other godly women in a small group. Maybe this means you start memorizing scripture with someone else to keep you accountable. Compete with them. See who can memorize it better. Maybe this means you ask people, hey, tell me about your daily or or your weekly reading. Tell me about your weekly prayer life. What do you think about this theological topic? How do you understand this passage? Learn from these people. Compete to be like they are. Here's what I, what I ultimately I'm saying. Find someone who you want to be like and be like them, right? Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So compete, friends, in a healthy, godly sort of way. Okay, thirdly, I think there's a caution. Thirdly is this, guard against jealousy, envy, and bitterness when others succeed. Yes, it's good to compete, but we need to balance this now. If left unchecked, competition leads to overall selfishness, which specifically plays out in, to quote Galatians 5, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying. The sin of envy can be encouraged by wanting to be the best to the point to where when someone else succeeds, now you are upset about it. You're mad about it. You wish you were them. Instead, we should strive to be excited when others do well and thankful for what God's doing in their life and thankful for what God has given us. But friends, we need to guard against jealousy and envy. Well, imagine some scenarios just to to bring this home. Someone gets that job that you applied for. Someone gets the starting spot that you wanted. Someone gets a better grade than you on an exam. Someone else gets to date that guy or that girl that you wanted. When someone else succeeds in an endeavor, we need to learn to set the competitive nature aside and to be thankful for God's work in another person's life, especially when they're a Christian. Listen, gang, bitterness, oof. Bitterness will fester. It will smolder within you. It will result in harm, not to the, whom with, to the one whom you're bitter with, but to who? But to you. Bitterness will consume and destroy you. Like cancer, it will make you sour, irritable, miserable, and oftentimes lead to depression, perhaps even suicide. As Robert E. Lee, the infamous Civil War general, said, it's better to forgive the injustices of the past than to allow them to remain, lest bitterness take root and poison the rest of our lives. Simply put, bitterness will kill you from the inside out. So, Here's the caution. Guard against jealousy, envy, and bitterness when others succeed around you. Lastly, number four, strive to be the best that you can be while cheering others on too. Strive to be the best that you can be while cheering others on too. God has given each one of us a unique package of gifts and abilities and possessions and positions and influence. And competition, I do believe, can make you be the best that you can be. That's what we're talking about, right? Making you the best you. But this should never be overcome, wanting to be the best me, that is, 
by envy when someone else succeeds. We should want to cheer others on in their successes as well. And friends, the Bible has so much to say about encouragement, about love, about the need to do that to one another. We've got some great encouragers in this ministry, but we're all called to be encouraging. And so, here's the principle. In humility, when someone else succeeds, we ought to have a heart that truly rejoices for them. Do you have that kind of heart? Man, I had to do some wrestling here. I don't know that I naturally have this kind of heart that wants to see others succeed and maybe even surpass me. That takes prayer, doesn't it? Why should we have this kind of heart? Well, because, i got a few reasons here. Because we recognize that we deserve no good in and of ourselves, and yet we've already been blessed so abundantly. In other words, how can I want more when, God, you've already given me so much? So much that I don't deserve. Because we recognize that our identity is in Christ, not in a job, not in a position, not in a status, or not in success. Therefore, because my identity is in Christ, I can rejoice when someone does well, even when they do better than me. We can rejoice because we recognize in the sovereignty of God that God has allowed that person to succeed, that person to be promoted, that person to overcome whatever it may be in their life. Therefore, we ought to pray Hey, God, you did this. Therefore, be glorified in that person. Gain glory through that person. And lastly, I think we can rejoice and cheer others on because we recognize that God is not passive, but he's actively placing me right where I am. Even if that means you're not going anywhere. Right? You wanted to move somewhere. You wanted to get a job. You wanted to get promoted. And you know what? God leaves you right where you're at. Is God passive? No. He is actively at work For what purpose now? He is actively at work to cause you to be more like Christ and to bring him the most glory. Friends, Christians, just in closing here, Christians ought to be the most self-competitive, the most encouraging of others, the most joy-filled no matter what, and yet the most driven people. Christians ought to be the most content people and the most discontent people at the exact same time. We ought to outdo the world in everything because we're compelled by the glory of God to do everything with excellence. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we, Lord, we don't have this figured out yet. (laughs) This is a tough one. And Lord, I just pray uh, that you would grow us. Lord, even as a few of us studied this week the life of Abraham and, Lord, how you were so patient to grow Abraham. You were interested. You were in the business, Lord, of growing Abraham's faith. Lord, after his initial profession of faith, you uh, were patient to draw him out, to show him his weaknesses, and to develop him as a man of God. In the same way, Lord, I think you're doing that through this series. As we study through Ecclesiastes 2, we look at the pursuits of Solomon. Lord, I think this is acting as a mirror in our own lives, as a mirror into our own hearts, where we see some of this in us, Lord. Though we may be born again, Lord, we can fall into idolatry and sin and false pursuits. And so I pray, Lord, that you would grow us, that you would grow our faith, that you would root out idols in our lives, that we would take the active step to uh, run hard after you and say no to sin. Lord, specifically tonight, pray that we would come away with a balanced view on competition, that we would zealously pursue godliness, pursue excellence in whatever job we may be doing, and at the same time, Lord, not be overcome by competition, not idolat- idolat- uh, make an idol out of uh, being the best or success, Lord.
Lord, would you do something in our hearts this evening, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.